0: Hi everyone and welcome back to the strike and ellicott files an unofficial podcast dedicated to all things cormoran strike as written by robert galbraith my name is kens and today lindsey pools and i will be continuing our reread of the cuckoo's calling covering chapters 9 and 10 of part 3 and chapters 1 and 2 of part 4. as always please be aware that our discussion of cuckoo's calling will reference the ending of this book as well as subsequent books in the series up to and including Troubled Blood*. Before we get started, though, let's get into a couple of great bits of feedback we've gotten recently.
1: Let me read this first one real quickly, because the second one, I know we have a lot to say about, but I just thought this one was so good that I wanted to make sure to mention it. It's from at Elliot K on Twitter, and he wrote in about the queen skate and the two does, and he said... Surely the stag and doe is a reference to Harry Potter. These two animals being Harry and Snape slash Lily's Patronuses respectively. Is it a cheeky reference to the relationship between the two series? They are the same, but different. And are we being warned not to try too hard to draw parallels between them? Ooh. I really love this because yeah, yeah, a doe and a stag seem like a very clear reference to Harry Potter. And in that chapter, it says the same yet profoundly different. So I can see the point Elliot is making about not trying too hard to draw parallels. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that, Elliot. I love that bit of insight. I thought it was great. Yeah, I love that too. Ah, that is a fantastic catch. Kind of makes me upset that I didn't think of it. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Damn it. (laughs) A stag and a doe, it's so obvious. Yeah, it is.
2: And it does make sense that she put it in the first book before people knew just as yeah. you know, a little fun thing for herself. Right.
1: Mm. Yeah. And it's just, she changed something just enough to make us wonder why she would do it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that makes perfect sense. So yeah. yeah, I really liked that. Yeah, that is great.
0: Okay. So the next one, I really like this one. I think that we're all dying to talk about it. So this is from at scruffy minds on Twitter who says, I think strike is an excellent role model for men, much like his uncle was to him. What do y'all think? In what ways is he and what ways isn't he? Interested to hear your thoughts. By the way, thanks for waking me up to the horrors of the porn industry.
1: How much time do we have? <laughs>
0: <Right>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. Can I just say before we, you know, that this message warmed my heart
2: because now I feel like I've actually made a positive impact on the world in some tiny way and I, I needed that. So thank you very much, Scruffy Minds. I'm really thrilled that you listened to what I had to say and that you felt it was important too. Anyway, back to the actual question, which is strike as a role model.
1: (laughs) Well, hold on though. I don't want to just breeze by that too quickly because I think it's awesome too. And I just wanted to say like, I know this is something that you were slightly nervous about going into, but Mm -hmm. I know how passionately you feel about it and how much that horrible chapter means to you because of it. Yeah, it does. I just think it's great and definitely something to feel proud about. Oh, yeah, it's good. And also, I just want to throw out there that if anyone is interested in learning more, there are a couple of really great resources out there. So Fight Mm -hmm. the New Drug is great. You can check out their website and they're on Instagram and Twitter. Mm -hmm. And Layla Micklewaite, she's also amazing. And she's on both Twitter and Instagram as well. I will say that some of her posts are a little bit hard to read but I also feel strongly that can't change something or fight against it if you don't know the truth about it. So yeah, good job. Yeah. But yes, back to strike as a role model. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think this is going to be much of a surprise to anyone that I agree with this. Mm -hmm. I remember we talked about this with Clara once and she talked about how he's a good role model, but that it's achievable. Mm -hmm. Because he's not some fictional man who's perfect in every way. He has very human flaws, but at his core, he's good.
2: Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And I'd add that even more importantly, we get to see him by the point we are in the books, doing self-reflection, acknowledging some of those flaws and how they're negatively impacting someone that he cares about. And he's working to improve as a person. I just think that that's super important role model stuff as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. I was talking to my husband about this yesterday, and he said that he's not interested in a role model who's perfect, but he wants to see someone who can grow.
0: Yeah, And that's something that Matthew never really seemed to do. And I think that's part of why Strike is such an infinitely preferable partner for Robin. So sorry to the listener who wrote in recently saying that they liked Matthew and got tired of hearing us talk about how great Strike is. (laughs) But if a character, say, like Matthew is too, like, self-involved to recognize when their behavior is hurting the ones that they love or doesn't care enough to change, then that really says something about the kind of person that they are. Plus, you know, infidelity, Mm -hmm. The fact that they had almost no shared interest or values, the fact
1: that she doesn't love him. Yeah. She should go back to him. Yeah. I would also like to point to chapter 45 of troubled blood for this because Robin really gets it right. I mean, a man you can trust on the big things. Someone with such a strong work ethic, someone who even before knowing her history has never been creepy or gross. (laughs) Not being creepy is a pretty low bar. It shouldn't be this amazing thing, but you know, it is. Yeah. The bar is definitely on the
2: floor. (laughs) Just another little thing. I also love how neat and tidy Strike is. Mm -hmm. I just, I love it. And it might be my imagination and wishful thinking, but I don't think Robin will be stuck doing all the housework when they eventually live together. So yes, contributing to a shared living space is another, you know, the bar is on the floor
1: thing, Mm -hmm. but I still love it. Yeah. Well, I don't think it's your imagination at all because Mm -hmm. we already see them sharing the chores around the office. So yeah, I don't think that you're imagining that at all. There was an interview once with Holiday Granger and I'm not coming for her because I'm 100% convinced that they are told to be sly about this and never give a real actual answer, Mm -hmm. you know, but she said something like, I don't know if I can see them arguing about the washing up. And I just remember thinking that wouldn't happen though. Yeah, no, it wouldn't. (laughs) No. Another thing I really want to highlight is that first meeting with Wardle. Strike never engaging with the belittlement of Tansy Bastigui and that gross locker room talk is a big one for me, specifically when it comes to being a role model for men. I cannot emphasize how important it is for men not to engage in that when there aren't women around to hear it. And when he does a bit of a
2: sarcastic call out of Polworth in the beginning of Troubled Blood for how he's talking about Penny too.
1: Yeah, there's an integrity there. I mean, if you're Mm -hmm. talking about women like that, when women aren't around, I think eventually we're going to pick up on it. Mm-hmm. Scruffy minds asked if there are ways in which we think he isn't a good role model, but like we've said, someone doesn't have to be perfect to be a role model, but mm-hmm. out of fairness, I will say, I know that there are people who feel like he doesn't treat the women he's in relationships with well. The way I see it is that he's choosing relationships that have no future out of fear. And we know that because JK Rowling has told us so, but I don't see him as a person who has a general disrespect or disregard for women. Mm -hmm. I know that women have been hurt, but I don't think anyone has gone through life without hurting other people. It doesn't mean that he's not a good role model. And again, watching him start to overcome those fears makes him for me an even better role model.
2: Yeah, I definitely agree with your point there that no one ever goes through life without hurting anyone right Mm -hmm. i feel like the worst of his behavior for me was nina back in silkworm but he himself acknowledged that he'd done wrong there and you can see with his next two relationships that he was trying to be more fair to the women he was with to get the casual relationship thing right you know it didn't work (laughs) but that's not 100% 100% his fault, right? I'm sure we'll get around to talking about Lorelai eventually and I I disagree with some people on on specific points of that relationship. Same. It seems to me actually that he generally treats the women he's with well in terms of, you know, nice dates, good sex, I assume. He doesn't cheat on them. He's faithful. He's clear about his, you know, what he wants from a relationship. Yeah. Good conversation with women that he can converse with so in all those respects he's a good boyfriend except for the fact that he can't or won't commit emotionally yeah but he's shown throughout the rest of the series that He does see women as human beings and that he cares about vulnerable women and works to Mm -hmm. keep them safe. And for me, that way outweighs the flaws in his love life that I think are going to be solved because I think he won't have a problem committing to the woman that he's actually in love with.
1: Oh, yeah. I'm not worried at all about his ability to commit because I think we've seen him really start to reconcile those fears. I mean, it's the Mm -hmm. entire point of the whole Mazenkov and Krupov thing, right? Mm -hmm. I realize that the three of us tend to agree on these kinds of things. And so if you disagree, Feel free to let us know. We probably won't change our minds. (laughs) But we really love this question. So thank you, Scruffy Minds, for sending it in. If it's not obvious, we think he's an awesome character who is only made more so by the fact that he's very human. A really well-written character. Yes. But okay, should we should we get into the chapters? We've got some fun stuff in these. These ones are fun. They
0: are fun. Yeah. So let's start out with chapter nine. In chapter nine, Lucy intercepts strike at the office.
1: Kind of feels more like an ambush, doesn't it?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Do you think she planned a shopping trip just so she could go by and ask about (laughs) Charlotte? Probably. I mean, to be fair, she probably couldn't get a hold of him any other way. Like, he's not exactly being (laughs) social now, is he? You know, it's understandable. Couldn't blame Lucy for being concerned.
2: Yeah, I suppose it's possible. I'd never actually thought of that before. But Mm -hmm. now that I do, what is she doing shopping in the middle of a weekday? I thought she had a demanding job. Did she pull a sickie so that she could get some shopping and interrogation
1: in or (laughs) interrogation? (laughs) I was thinking about that too. But either way, I think if she had planned a shopping trip, this is probably part of her plan.
0: Mm-hmm. You talked about this last episode, Bulls, but I really appreciate Strike's genuine concern for Rochelle here as he calls the number that she provided to check to see if it's real or not.
1: Yeah. surprise, surprised her voicemail wasn't her rapping.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's a genius idea. I have the urge to write a voicemail rap for my own inbox. What would mm-hmm. it be? I don't know. I can't come up with something on the
0: spot. Grave Digging Buddy remix.
2: Yeah. I, all I have now <laughs> is the Grave Digging buddy's song stuck in my head. I'm like, you've reached the inbox of Pools. You know what? I'm going to go workshop this
1: okay. and I'm going to bring it back and you can tell me what you think. All right. I look forward to it. <laughs> Put a pin in it. In all seriousness, though, he's also feeling like he should have done more about Rochelle, which I think really indicates that he just has a bad feeling about it
2: yeah i think his instincts are screaming at him so he knows that she knows a lot more than she let on he knows she was on the phone with someone relevant to the case he's suspicious of bristow and he noticed bristow trying to keep him away from Michelle. i think all of that's adding up and yeah he is clearly worried which again speaks to he genuinely cares about vulnerable women you know,
0: while walking back to the office after speaking with Rochelle strike chastises himself, not for the first time for letting his relationship with Robin become too intimate and resolves to treat Robin with a slightly cooler edge of authority for the rest of the day to counterbalance that glimpse of hairy belly.
1: Do you think it's kind of taken him by surprise how well and how quickly they've clicked? I think this outwardly appears really rude and it's really unfair to Robin But like I said earlier, we know he's chosen relationships that have no future because he fears that. And even though this is just a friendship right now, he does kind of do this with his friendships as well, doesn't he? Mm. he keeps them all at arm's length. Yeah, he he's an almost pathologically
2: private person. It seems like in this passage, what he's really afraid of is, is being asked questions about his private life or having to explain or talk about it. And he worries that intimacy with Robin would lead to that. Which, of course, shows he doesn't really know Robin yet because she, too, is super private and doesn't ever pry because of it.
0: I definitely think that he's taken aback by how just how well they click. And that feeling is exactly what spurs him on to keep her at arm's length. Next, strike's first impression when he enters the stairwell leading up to the office and hears two female voices upstairs as panic that Charlotte has come back to the office to, in his words, overwhelm his temp with charm to make an ally of his friend to saturate his own staff with Charlotte's version of the truth. Now, mercifully, it's not her, it's just Lucy. Not that it matters much to Strike because he was dreading her arrival either way and how much, God forbid, Robin might know about him now.
1: Yeah, it seems like it's definitely a lesser dread than it would be if it was Charlotte, but he's not only worried about what Robin knows, but what Lucy might now know, you know, which I find understandable given Lucy. Yeah,
2: I'm also interested in this little glimpse into Charlotte's usual MO. I think it really speaks to how manipulative she is And the thought of being in a relationship with someone like this, who, who steals or warps or ruins your connections to other people so that you can't have anything to yourself.
1: It Mm. is so suffocating to me. Like, my God, 16 years of that. I know. It makes me wonder about the times where it happens Mm. and it might especially sting with Robin because they have clicked. Yeah. It would hurt more. Yeah. be more
0: upsetting yeah In through lucy fashion she launches immediately into an interrogation about strike's personal life which is always so stressful to read yeah it
1: is although first it always makes me laugh when she calls him sherlock because i don't know <laughs> if we ever really get to see this sarcastic funny side of her again and i, I like it
2: yeah i did she's genuinely hilarious here <laughs> i think this is one of the only times we ever see her outside of the home without greg and or the boys around and as strike notes she's she's in higher spirits when she's unencumbered so this phrasing unencumbered is this strikes bias thinking she must be happier without all of these you know anchors and burdens she's placed on herself or is it a clue that maybe this a perfect suburban life she's cultivated doesn't actually make her happy and i'm aware i might
1: be reading way too much into that <laughs> <laughs> well i think his bias is definitely at play here Or Mm. it's just his lack of understanding of being a parent and the absolute bliss of getting to go shopping by yourself. (laughs) I don't know any mother who doesn't feel that way. So Mm. I don't think she's happier here because of what you're suggesting. Sure. Although I think her perfect life, not making her happy is possible but again, not, not in the, this way. Mm-hmm. I think it's more like she's using her family and her anchors as a band-aid instead of dealing with the deep pain that she has.
2: I'm really glad that I have your insight as a parent here because <laughs> I too like strike. I'm probably prone to these kinds of not understandings, but it makes sense to me that she's using this life as a, as a sort of band-aid instead of, you know, getting her ass to therapy. And let
1: me tell you shopping by yourself
2: is heaven is heaven. You
1: know? Yeah. <laughs> It's wonderful. (laughs) But going back to what you said, Kent, I agree that her questioning is stressful because she immediately starts asking about his leg. And Mm. to me, it's just. It's like she has no sense that he might not want to discuss that in front of someone else or that the other person might not know and that it's personal. Mm -hmm. You would think that Lucy would just have a better understanding of not wanting to discuss certain things
0: and how that might feel. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just the opposite of the tact that Robin then shows. Yeah, it is. Speaking of tact, I love that Robin has the sense and tact to leave him and Lucy to it after her initial round of questioning. Mm -hmm. Just- bless her. She's wonderful.
1: I'm really glad that he not only didn't have the opportunity to treat her more coolly, but realized how unkind it would have been. Um, I think he's realizing that what he was afraid of her prying maybe wasn't going to happen.
2: Yeah. I feel like Strike has ideas about Robin based on his ideas about how women act. And then the real Robin just keep surprising him and, and
1: forcing him to, to reevaluate his ideas it actually kind of reminds me of all the times where robin is sure of what strike is thinking and that mm-hmm. she's usually wrong yeah the difference is with strike it's about her actions and he can easily be proven wrong where robin it's about thoughts and she needs to vocalize what she thinks in order for strike to prove her wrong
0: and that last bit is what i'm hoping for the most with Ink black heart more of that talking thing mm-hmm. and less of her being in her head all the time yeah,
2: yeah. just another way in which they are so similar yeah Mm -hmm. i love that in this chapter this bit we get the first instance of someone in strike's life really liking robin Mm -hmm. and telling him that he should make her permanent we know that this is a pattern that continues but it's lucy's out here founding the robin fan club
1: (laughs) And I support yeah. that. I think strike is actually the founder. He just will not admit it right now.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're right. Strike is the president. He just denies it.
0: Now, I know you love this next mm-hmm. bit pools where Lucy compares Matthew to Greg. First, yeah. though, I like the seemingly
1: simple question when strike asked what they were laughing about, because it's actually really important to him. And I like that they were laughing at Matthew because, you know well deserved
2: (laughs) yeah absolutely deserved
1: and yes kens obviously i have harped on this quite
2: a bit and i know that everyone is sick of it but i still genuinely think that this parallel is foreshadowing a lucy greg divorce arc and i will happily
1: die on this hill (laughs) so i want to say i don't disagree yeah (laughs) as far as seeing like i i see the parallels to matthews i get it i just i don't have feelings like i don't need it yeah you you don't need it you yeah. do I get that. Oh God, if it happens, we're all in for it. We're never going to hear the end. of Oh <laughs> my
2: goodness. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of things that I think no one will ever hear the end of when they happen in these books that I've predicted correctly. So,
1: but anyway, Lucy asks if he and Charlotte have split up. Do you think that she heard this through the grapevine after he told Spanner? Because this isn't a random guess, right? The way she says it, Mm -hmm. I'm kind of imagining that Ilsa told her mother who then told Joan, unless either of you have the impression that Ilsa and Lucy speak. Which no, I, I, th- I
2: think that this sort of St. Ma's gossip chain that you're describing is pretty likely. Yeah. Um, but maybe Lucy has also been trying to call him at the flat and was also suspicious when he didn't show up with Charlotte to the party. But no, reflecting about it, I think that your first guess here is right. And I'm guessing also that all of these women, Ilsa, Ilsa's mom, Joan, Lucy. Well, we know Lucy yeah. hated Charlotte. So they would have jumped to spread that news through their little phone chain.
1: Oh yeah. <laughs> I would love to hear those conversations. Wouldn't you? <laughs> oh,
2: yeah, absolutely.
0: God to be a fly on the wall. Could you imagine the things Joan would have said? Oh my God. I actually kind of think Joan would have been
1: maybe the calmest. Yeah. Just because of that chapter in troubled blood where she gives her, she gives her quiet opinion. Yeah, that's Mm it. I don't know. I I imagine that she's on the receiving end of a lot of angry (laughs) phone calls, you know, from Lucy. She's probably trying to calm it down a little bit. I would Mm -hmm.
0: think maybe it would be more interesting to see what her thoughts are rather than what she is saying. Oh, yeah.
1: But during Lucy's initial rant, she says one thing that I find interesting, and I don't know if I have many thoughts on it yet. I mean, I'm wondering if either of you do. She says that Charlotte rendered strike as insecure as possible. What do you think that
2: means? Well, Lucy seems to blame Strike leaving the army and breaking up with Tracy on Charlotte, which suggests a couple things to me. First, that the split with Tracy happened not too long before the explosion. And more importantly, it shows that Lucy really constructs narratives in her head about things and then clings to them, refusing to listen to facts that contradict the narratives, even when they're about someone else's life, right? So in her head, Charlotte has lured Strike away from his job, And his girlfriend that Lucy liked and then made sure that he was dependent on her for housing and Mm. support and everything, right?
1: Yeah. I think that's the super accurate read on Lucy. I guess it's just the word insecure to me that is not fitting for some reason. I
0: don't know. Is it possible that she meant insecure in the sense of being unstable? Since in her eyes, Charlotte and her volatility took him away from the stability of the army and his girlfriend?
2: That's exactly how I read insecure there. As lacking in material security. not, Not insecure in the more like psychological yeah. self-esteem way right yeah
1: that makes sense yeah
2: yeah because lucy is much more concerned with yeah she is the material trappings and you know well i guess a place, a place yeah. to live isn't really a material <laughs> trapping i suppose <laughs> i can't blame her for being concerned that her brother's homeless
1: yeah of course but yeah that's how i read it i find lucy's assessment of charlotte very interesting because everything that lucy says about who and what charlotte is is pretty spot on. Only returning to him for the drama of the situation, playing a ministering angel, measuring her own worth in the havoc she caused, glorying in the pain she inflicted.
2: (laughs) Yeah, she's she's not wrong. I feel like the women in Strike's life, Lucy and Elsa probably saw Charlotte's destructive personality traits much more clearly than Strike himself did. Oh, totally. And they might not have seen some of her good points if she had them. And they also weren't blinded by the... The whole Mm. good looking face thing.
1: I totally agree. Maybe it's just that we don't fully know Lucy that well yet. I mean, even Mm. five books in, I think we have a very one-sided view of her, Mm. right? But this seems like an almost uncharacteristically accurate read on someone. And I say uncharacteristically because I don't even think Lucy has a very realistic view of who her own brother is, but Charlotte, Mm. she understands. And I think Lucy understands her so well, maybe because of how similar she is to Leda.
2: Oh, that's a really interesting point. I'm not sure that this description of the drama uh, Ministering Angel Glorying in the Pain is totally in line with what we know of Leda. Like mm-hmm. I think Leda and Charlotte do have a lot of similarities, especially on like the surface of their situations. But to me, Leda's personality seemed more, more careless. Like the damage that she caused was collateral to her enthusiasms, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas Charlotte is much more deliberate in manipulating people and situations to get, I guess, what she craves.
1: Yeah. I think you're right about those differences, Mm. but I wonder if that's how Lucy feels.
2: Oh yeah.
1: You know, she might not be that willing to give that to Leda Mm -hmm. or maybe it's just the influence and insight of others. So things that Joan says or Ilse's mother, you know, and all of them talking about Charlotte, maybe that's also provided her with more insight as well. Yeah. And she does, she does have a
2: very different perspective of Leda than, than Strike does understandably. So, Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, that makes sense to me.
1: It just makes me really curious if Lucy does see this connection between Leda and Charlotte, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm conflicted because I think there's so much we don't know about Lucy yet in regards to Leda at this point, Mm -hmm. like, how much does she know but she doesn't tell strike, I'm very curious about that but at the same time she doesn't always seem to be in total control of her emotions, as we see. So that's, a, that's an understatement. Conflicted. Yeah. <laughs> I'm
2: not sure. I'm not sure, to be honest. I'll have to uh, think on that.
1: I'd really like it if part of learning more about Leda means that we get to see some of these things about Lucy, because I'm just really hoping that it leads
0: to the two of them having a better relationship. It'd be great if they could see a little bit more eye to eye. It'd be really interesting, I think, to hear more from Lucy and kind of hear her pr- perspective, as irritating as it can occasionally be. We hear all the time about, you know, how Strike has processed and kind of coped with the things that happened to him. Lucy growing up, but we haven't really heard anything directly from Lucy. I think it was you pools that might've mentioned that, you know, Lucy likely has some unique trauma. You know as mm-hmm. a result of how they grew up being a woman and everything. And yeah. uh, and while I know it's certainly not gonna endear us to Leda anymore, it'll certainly be interesting to read for sure.
1: One other thing that I'll say about Lucy, because I know that I'm often hard on her, but her just out shopping and her bags full of clothes for her boys is touching in contrast to Leda. Yeah. I think I think having Lucy as a mother could be tough in some ways because of how high strung she is and all her expectations, but I think she's doing her absolute best to be a good mother and to not put her children, what she went through. So that I yeah. do find endearing about her.
2: Yeah. She is trying really hard to make sure they have all of the the security and, mm-hmm. and stability that she didn't have.
0: Yeah. She's a good mom. So this is hilarious. Strikes thoughts after Lucy <laughs> leaves. They make me laugh. It says uh, he forced a grin and a wave before lighting another cigarette and reflecting that Lucy's idea of sympathy compared unfavorably with some of the interrogation techniques they had used at Guantanamo. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: That last line is hilarious.
0: It's just tough because it's
1: very clear that she loves her brother very much and it could not have been easy watching him be on and off with Charlotte for 16 years, you know, watching someone you love go through an abusive relationship is hard. Part of me also understands Lucy's feelings. Like she needs to rant about Charlotte to try and convince him not to go back. Do you know what I mean? Like get Mm -hmm. all of your arguments out so that hopefully he'll hear it. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you know, learning how to approach him differently or react differently would probably go a really long way with getting him to share.
2: Yeah, I agree on all counts. I think Lucy has a hard time understanding that other people think differently than she does. And she's not really in the habit of putting herself in other people's shoes.
1: Yeah. And I think we see that so clearly because of how difficult that is for Strike and how Mm -hmm. it makes him feel towards her. JK Rowling is so good at giving us both sides of an argument and both perspectives, which allows us to examine our own behavior and our own reactions to other people. Mm -hmm. She just has really good insight into people and behavior yeah she
2: really really does
1: okay should we go to chapter 10 chapter 10 absolutely
2: in this chapter robin thinks back on her encounter with lucy Mm.
1: i like encounter for lucy that's good encounter (laughs) it just it gives a sort of no it's perfect yeah it is (laughs) Lucy was definitely trying to get information out of Robin, which is a little bit unfair, but I really like the exchange between them when Lucy is clearly suggesting that Charlotte would be jealous of Robin. Mm -hmm. Again, another thing that suggests to me that Robin is clearly attractive and maybe also strikes type
2: oh yeah i think she is as tight as is hinted in Mm -hmm. lethal white
1: yeah but you know reading back
2: robin seems to have handled lucy's interrogation pretty well like she managed to dodge or deflect almost all of her prying it was masterful Mm -hmm.
1: i think strike would be impressed at her skills i do too Of course, she also didn't understand what Lucy was implying right away. And I wonder if that would have thrown her a little bit. But yeah, Yeah. it's everything else. I think he would be impressed and very pleased.
0: Mm -hmm. And probably a little touched by her concern or respect for his privacy. Oh, Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure.
1: And I just, I really like how it clicked later. That just, oh, oh, moment.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I guess that kind of shows that that strike is not in the romantic prospect. Category of Robin's Brain <laughs> at all at this point. No. Not in the slightest. <laughs> no.
0: Yeah. And, and speaking of that, Robin's saying that the idea of Strike making a pass was distasteful to her. And then her description of Strike to Matt really, really makes me laugh. (laughs) She says, Matt, honestly, if you saw him, he's enormous and he's got a face like some beaten up boxer. He's not remotely attractive. I'm sure he's over 40 and she had cast around for more aspersions to cast upon Strike's appearance. He's got that sort of puby hair. (laughs) (laughs) like god robin is pulling no punches here i have to say though i love this progression now to where she is five books later where you know she's having waves mm-hmm. of liking for how he looks yeah has how the turntables indeed <laughs> with that
1: one <laughs> mm-hmm. it's so funny to think that she finds the idea of him making a past distasteful and then in troubled blood she's like what do i have to offer you know oh, yeah <laughs> fools I think you had suggested previously that Robin was possibly really playing this up for Matthew's benefit right
0: mm-hmm.
1: I agree with that although I there's not much of a question for me that she does not find him attractive initially at all which yeah I love because the progression is so fun to read and it's something I'm really looking forward to and hoping we get a little bit more of in the ink black heart mm-hmm. you know a little something more than a wave of liking
2: yeah it's the fact that she had to cast around for more aspersions mm-hmm. and then could only come up this yeah. hair um makes me think that yeah she's maybe putting an extra negative spin for matthew's sake i mean especially since yeah. enormous is the opposite of under <laughs> he, he is enormous so we know we love it Robin. but no i agree i agree that she's not attracted to him at the beginning i mean we all know that one of my favorite things ever is the sort of illustration of how falling in love actually changes the way we we see the person we're in love with so i'm a big fan of it too
1: Mm -hmm.
2: also over 40. Ouch,
1: Robin. (laughs) Well, she's not the only one to think it. Yeah. Right. But hadn't she Googled him at this point? Like, did it not say when he was born? I don't know. Maybe she Googled him, but
2: didn't bother to do the math with his birth date. Yeah. I wouldn't bother with math either. (laughs) Yeah. But no, you're right. Strike says he is used to people thinking he's a decade older than he actually is, which, you know. maybe quit smoking because that is a big contributor
1: well we know he also he's also not looking his best right because he's he's a bit beaten up Mm -hmm. he doesn't have a place to live yeah
0: you know so this probably seems strange to you guys too but lucy talking about Leda's death with robin is just so so strange to me robin is literally a stranger to her here And it's funny because Strike actually comments on that later. It says, his sister deplored the fact that their mother had lived and died in conditions of mild notoriety, yet in certain moods she seemed to be seized with a paradoxical desire to discuss it all, especially with strangers. Strike suspects this is because she needs some sort of release since she never talks about her past with her neighbors or to get out ahead of any preconceived notions people might have about her or her family. Do you guys agree with him or do you have any other theories? Because I think his reasoning makes sense. It seems to be some sort of coping mechanism for
2: I agree that Strike is probably right about Lucy's motivations behind talking about this with strangers. He's much more insightful when it comes to analyzing other people than his sister is. Yeah, I lean towards the getting out ahead of it part of his theory most. It's interesting that she says people usually know about Leda without being told, isn't it? Because like, I guess the Rokeby thing is common knowledge being on Wikipedia. But at this point, the story of of Lita's death, wouldn't it have to require a little bit of digging to come across? Like it was fifteen to sixteen years ago at this point, and she wasn't a huge celebrity or anything.
1: I don't think it would be that difficult because when Robin Google's information on Rokeby Lita's name is underlined, which tells me that she has her own Wikipedia page. Ah, and her death is also mentioned on Wikipedia for Whitaker when Robin Google's him in Career of Evil. So I get the impression that it's just kind of right there on Wikipedia. You'd have to click through one whole, yeah, link. you know. Who's clicking through is Robin. Oh, obviously, yes.
0: Now there's an interesting connection of Lula with Leda here. She died of an overdose and they said it was suicide, but Stick always thought that her ex-husband did it.
2: Yeah. I think that with this ring book theory, I think we're definitely getting another suspicious suicide in book seven. And I think it's going to be going back to Leda's the original, the first suspicious suicide.
1: It's interesting, even with their names. Yeah. They're both four letter L names that well, start with L and end with A. Even oh, that yes. is a similarity between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Is it too early to say that I can't wait for book seven? <laughs> no, not at all.
0: We also learned that Leda's death is the reason why Strike left university. Strike leaving university. So yeah, we know that his mother's
2: death and the trial spurred him to leave. I was thinking about this, and I, I think that the injustice of Whitaker getting off on that murder. Would have given a teenage strike this driving need to start doing something practical to get justice for other people, right? Like how could he go back to his, his academic course after that happened?
1: Yeah. It all goes back to him being a man of action. Yeah. I I don't think he could have continued with the same life course after that happened. No way. No. I love the opening of this next paragraph where Robin thinks that her compassion also contains curiosity Hmm. and that she knew she was going to Google all of it because that's Robin, isn't it? I mean, she's full of compassion, but also curiosity. And that's why she's such a good detective I've of so many times. <laughs> Absolutely.
2: I have nothing smart to add to that. I just love it. Bless her. <laughs> she's, oh,
1: she's so great. <laughs> I'd love it if one day she confesses to him how often she Googled him in those early days. <laughs> yes. <laughs> just admits how <laughs> curious she was about him. That would be really funny.
0: Yeah, it would be. He knew him to be a proud and self-sufficient man. These were the things she liked and admired about him even if the way these qualities expressed themselves the camp bed the box possessions on the landing the empty pot noodle tubs in the bin aroused the derision of such as matthew who assumed that anyone living in uncomfortable circumstances must have been profligate or feckless
1: i love what this says about robin though that she can look at these things and find such value in it as opposed to the judgment of someone like matthew who only looks at the surface Mm, absolutely and we also get some of her keen
2: observational skills here you know noticing the pot noodle garbage so putting that together she knows how he's feeding himself
1: we know that robin is naturally curious and i assume that Mm. she's often curious about other people in this way but i have to imagine that her curiosity towards strike is definitely stronger than it is for the average person right Mm -hmm. Uh, he's quite the mystery he's got the job she desires He's her future husband. You know, all of, it. <laughs> of
0: course, I love that you just slipped that he's her future husband in there. Like- facts.
1: <laughs> I also think that while we just saw her telling Matthew that he's not even remotely attractive, we now see all of these things that she really admires in him. It's kind mm-hmm. of a reflection of how her feelings for him eventually develop. I think. Yeah. A quick case side note to mention is that Strike finds the coat Rochelle was wearing online. And the important part is that it's only been available for two weeks. So well after Lula's death and also it's 1500 pounds, which how much is she blackmailing Bristow for?
2: Oh, a that's, that's a good point. Maybe, maybe she's been saving up her blackmail payments to get the perfect <laughs> ugly coat. More likely it's not like a regular payment, but just Rochelle pressuring Bristow whenever she sees mm. something she wants or needs her rent paid, right? Threatening him if he doesn't pay out for whatever it is.
1: Yeah, that that makes perfect sense. I don't know why I have it in my head that blackmail is like getting a set paycheck each month (laughs) that they had to to negotiate a price or something. I don't signing a blackmail contract, getting the direct
2: deposit slip for the blackmail, you know, are blackmail payments tax exempt. Like, where's my blackmail
1: pension? Clearly, I've never done it. I don't know how it works.
0: So I feel bad. Um, You know, Strike was just saying earlier in the chapter or in the previous chapter that being extra cool and professional with Robin would have been unkind. And yet he's carrying over his frustration and exhaustion with Lucy over to her. It makes sense. It just sucks for both of them.
1: Yeah. I don't think this is him trying to do it purposely like he had earlier intended, but Mm -hmm. it says that the confrontation with Lucy had exhausted him and he wanted to be alone. Number one, introvert. (laughs) Number two. I can really relate to needing to be alone and I'm not arguing that it's right or fair to Robin. I just get it. Mm -hmm. Plus it seems like he too is having some anxiety about how many things that were very private and traumatic for him were revealed to Robin and he's taking it out unfairly on her, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's a very human flaw to me. I think we've all been there. Yeah, absolutely. We have relatable strike once more. I also wonder if he's worried that his initial opinion of Robin as being tactful and not asking prying questions is about to be ruined, kind of mm-hmm. like how earlier in the book when they went to the Kentigern Gardens and Robin was pleased to acquit him of in flirtatious intent. I think you were the one to suggest pools that she was pleased because she didn't want her initial opinion of him to change.
2: Yeah, maybe. I think he's really slipped back into his patterns of thinking because of of everything you said above. Says so he's going to go to the Tottenham to think without being badgered for explanations as if robin has ever yeah. he assumes she'll pry i feel like i'm now just talking myself into agreeing <laughs> with you
1: <laughs> well i mean it doesn't have to be one or the other these things are often multifaceted and sometimes the person feeling it doesn't even understand all the reasons why
2: yeah absolutely
1: and then we end the chapter on the awkwardness between them persisted
2: and for the first time he was quite pleased to see robin leave because he gets
1: to watch her walk away. <laughs> wow. Well, she is a very sexy girl. So, <laughs> I mean, I get it. He wants to be alone. That wasn't fun for him. No, it wasn't. All right. Should we go to part four? Because we get an epigraph. Yeah. Yay. Yay.
0: <laughs> the epigraph goes, and the best plan is, as the popular saying was, to profit by the folly of others. And that's from Historia mm. Naturalis by Pliny the Elder.
1: I'm struggling with this one a little bit because it just feels so straightforward that I must be missing something. (laughs) This is the second to last part of the book and it's the longest one. And so he's really building up to this final confrontation and conclusion and everyone that he talks to and interviews, and there's a lot of people, I mean, he's benefiting from them because we know he's going to solve the case and it's what turns his whole life and business around.
2: Yeah. I'm thinking maybe we should keep this epigraph in mind as we read part four so that we we can point at bits where people are being foolish really though essentially it's bristow's folly in hiring a genius private detective to investigate the crime he committed uh that that strikes about to profit off of so good job bristow
1: Way to go. Yeah, definitely, Bristow. But also, we have the best chapter, in my opinion, in this section, which is where he gets drunk because Charlotte's getting married. And it seems to me that even though this is extremely painful for him, he's still benefiting from Charlotte's foolishness because it does place a barrier between them that hasn't ever been there before. Mm. She is now going to be someone's wife. And as far as we know, he's never crossed that line. So he might not see it as a benefit yet, but it really is. And I mean, let's be honest, we all benefit from it, right? I love that. And yes, everyone benefits. He just doesn't know what's good for him yet. Exactly. And just looking this up and learning a little bit about Pliny the Elder, I saw another quote in the same book that says that in wine, there is truth and Mm -hmm. it's not used in this book, but I just thought it was so funny because it fits (laughs) so well with that chapter.
2: It super does. I feel
1: like if she'd done chapter graphs, that mm-hmm. would have been, you know. Oh, 100%. Yeah. But I think that's a great idea to keep this in mind because it is such a long section.
0: So let's get into chapter one. And in this chapter, Strike interviews Gisa May. I just love how Strike has this feeling of defiance as he changes into his suit for the interview with Same. Yeah,
1: I do too. Because he's thinking of all the kinds of things he saw on Gisame's site and his suit's very conventional, but like, can you imagine Strike in some of Same's clothes? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I must be conventional in my dress mm-hmm. sense as well, because... Everything that Strike described on Guy's website sounded absolutely hideous to me.
1: Yeah, like chainmail ties. What? Wait, <laughs> you don't you don't have a chainmail tie? No, I wear mine every day. <laughs> I'm wondering now if I just don't have enough
2: chainmail.
0: What is going to protect me from swords? You know. All right. So while waiting for Cemay to come out, Strike takes the opportunity to call Rochelle, which it says that he had been doing ten times a day since he had met her. Now, assuming that the timeline that's on Strike Fans is correct, and I'm pretty sure it is, he's now called her 20 times since they met, and there's yet to be a response. And that's assuming he's called her 10 times the day they met, and then the following day another 10 times.
1: It's really sad because we know she's already dead at this point. And just before this bit, it says that the glittering of the Thames had dazzled his eyes. It might be a stretch to make a connection there, but mentioning the Thames and then trying to call Rochelle is especially heartbreaking since we know that's where she is
2: yeah he's calling a phone that's right now sitting in Yvette Bristow's safe <laughs> so hopefully John turned it off or silenced it before putting <laughs> it in there but no I, d- I don't think it's a stretch at all to connect his view of the Thames because it's like that glittery dazzling surface covering up the
1: darkness and death underneath mm-hmm. which feels yeah. like it must mean something yeah you're right it's really sad imagine Bristo is such an idiot that he forgot to put it on silent and all of a sudden it just starts rapping dv mac as the ringtone and he's like damn it I'm just imagining it going off
2: 10 times a day and work poor, poor confused lady Bristol can't figure <laughs> out where the rap music is coming
1: from. and they're like oh they're there she's uh, just making you know it's just in her head oh my god i'm sure he silenced it i know that is funny though <laughs> I like the description of Guy Sube. It's really great just because there's such a massive contrast between him and Strike. I just, I felt like we were in for some entertainment right off the bat.
2: Yeah, I think Guy is an interesting character and he feels like a very vivid one to me, like vividly written. You know, the the sort of campy fashion designer could have been a caricature but I, I feel like we get a lot of complex stuff and real feeling in the way that Joe writes Guy in this chapter. And I don't know if I'm alone in that, but I do think
0: we get quite a bit here. So it says, strike felt abnormally huge and hairy, a woolly mammoth attempting to blend in among <laughs> capuchin monkeys. I've always liked this
1: line, and I'm really happy that they had him say this out loud in the show. It's just way too good <laughs> to have kept it out. You know, it's God, funny. It so is. So we've got woolly mammoths,
2: black bear. <laughs> Startled bison. Mm. So which big hairy animal comparison are we going to get in Hink Blackheart? I'm really excited to find out.
1: What do you both think about when Guy says that he can see a bit of Johnny? Either he's trying to let Strike know that he knows something about him or he wants Strike to know that he knows famous people like as a way to brag.
2: Yeah. We know strike looks nothing like rugby. So Guy's definitely saying this for some reason of his own. And I think it might be trying to to unsettle strike somehow or trying to get the upper hand.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense.
1: When they get to Guy's office, there's this large portrait of Lula with the angel wings. Mm -hmm. And it also says that she was represented elsewhere, everywhere. This is just wild speculation. But do you think that it's always been like that? Or is it like after she died? Oh, like Like he set up his office as a shrine to her afterwards.
2: That's an interesting thought.
1: I mean, obviously the angel wings one Mm -hmm. would probably be after she died, but the others might've been there longer. I don't
0: know. He seems so like devoted to her. I wouldn't be surprised. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. That's
1: what I was thinking too. Possessive Yeah. is the
0: word I would use. <laughs> yeah, maybe not devoted. Devoted's a little too positive. Yeah. But God, I have to say, Same's designs seem to be pretty tacky and terrible. Yeah, big time. The Diana yeah. one and the suggestions for William and Harry are just like, oh my God.
2: <laughs> you know what? I actually really like that Diana t-shirt because it seems like a commentary on royal worship. And actually, now that I think about it, Diana is a pretty relevant reference for the story. Like the press were absolutely horrific to her and it literally drove her to her death and we've heard yes. someone say the same thing about lula haven't we
1: yeah that's a great point and really sad almost mm-hmm. like a combination of that worship yet horrific harassment that comes with being in the public eye mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah you're right i know that we joked on a previous episode about gisa may calling bristow the accountant but mm. with Gee's explanation here of how he was with money, it's kind of getting close to Bristow's motive, right? Which mm-hmm. is money or partly so. So I guess this nickname is a bit of a hint that his reaction to money is evident to other people.
2: And now I've just realized it might be a red flag that he was willing to pay double. And Strike mentions that he paid double here oh, too. So maybe you're like, yeah. why is he paying? Double? His explanation is, I just really want to find out. But mm. I'm like, hmm, he's usually really tight with money. So that's a yeah. bit sus. Anyway, I think this is also sort of a sign pointing to the fact that he he is pretty sharp. He's a pretty sharp guy and that his assessment of people might be more accurate than someone like Bryony's as as we get Mm -hmm. later.
1: Yeah, maybe. What do you think about Simé's implication that Bristow is gay? The two reasons he gives are basically that he's a mommy's boy and that Allison is a cover-up or he calls her a beard to be exact, Um, neither of which I like for what he's saying, but I think both of these things are actually important. So it's important that he wanted his mother's attention all to himself. And also the implication that he's not really into Allison. I think these are kind of little hints hidden in something that he's saying in a not very nice way.
0: I really like that. That's a really great crutch. I've never noticed that before. Yeah. I love that Same names his- cats, Victor and Rolf. It kind of reminds me of the nods to uh, fictional eighties TV detectives, Cagney and Lacey in troubled blood with Anna and Kim's cats. So Victor and Rolf, in case our listeners aren't aware is the name of a Dutch avant-garde luxury fashion house that also produces flower bomb, which as you might remember oh. is Sarah Shadlock's perfume. Mm-hmm. I actually did not
1: catch that either. That's a, that's a great catch.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I hadn't realized that. We all know that she loves names, but her use of names through pets in this series is really good. Like Rattenbury is still my favorite because it's also a huge clue, but I kind of think stopping to look up some names of animals might be worth doing in future books.
2: As if I will ever stop in my first read of this book to look up
1: anything. (laughs) I feel like that could be doable. I'd have
2: to tear my eyes away from the page (laughs) in order to do that. So that's a a no for me, dog.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Randy. You're welcome. I kind of find it odd that when he talks about seeing the news for the first time and learning about Lula's death, that he notes that the newscaster had a horrible hat. It's just a weird detail. I mean, I'm not a designer, so maybe it's just natural for him, but I don't think it makes him seem likable. I'm a bit more generous in my reading here. I think,
2: I think that when something shocking happens, sometimes our brains just decide to focus on something silly and small, maybe as like some kind of protective mechanism. Right. Yeah. So I don't know he seems so unsettled and upset about Lula's death still to me so it makes sense that this random tiny detail stood out to him and then has become part of the the narrative he tells
1: you know you're right I think he's very genuine in his grief as we mm-hmm. see at the end when he cries so maybe it's just because I don't like him very much <laughs> yeah maybe it just kind of seems like just a little bit of meanness that he has to put in in everything he says I don't know yeah Yeah, I mean, I just don't find him likable at all, really, to be honest. The way he talks about Rochelle is eh, even though he maybe has a point about Rochelle's intentions. I don't like that he called her a bag lady and the way that he treats his staff is also really telling to me. He does seem like like a bit of an asshole,
2: especially to women. He yeah. seems like a bit of a misogynist. All of the mm-hmm. slurs he uses in
0: here are exhausting to read. So yeah, yeah. I get that. Guy is talking about Duffield when he says it's that wounded poet crap, that soul pain shit, that too much of a tortured genius to wash bollocks. Brush your teeth, you little bastard. You're not fucking Byron. <laughs>
1: <laughs> First of all, damn your eyes
0: damn your eyes (laughs) byron
1: if you don't understand the ghost reference go watch watch ghosts ghosts. immediately i mean i I
2: agree with him about duffield like brush your teeth gross dudes it's it's gross please yeah and again the bar is on the floor (laughs) but brush your teeth and have basic hygiene that is gross though i mean it's so gross god Duffield. yeah (laughs) duffield
1: is Gisame then plays a voicemail that Lula left him. And it seems like Lula was about to tell him about Jonah, right? Is that the impression that you got from the voicemail? Things she was excited about? Yeah, that was
2: definitely it. And a little extra dose of sadness that she was so excited once more.
1: I wonder what he would have thought about Jonah in general, Mm. because he seems pretty controlling of Lula.
2: Yeah, he does come off as quite controlling, both in a personal and a professional way. Mm -hmm. But it seems like he has a very dominating kind of personality. Which fits with, with Lula looking more subdued when she's around him, as we learn in the next chapter. I believe that he cared about her, but I think that that care was connected to a lot, a lot of strings, if that makes sense,
1: you know? Yeah, it does. He also doesn't like any of her ambitions to possibly study in Africa or volunteer. It just seems like anything that possibly took her away from him was bad in his eyes. Mm. Even if it helped her as a person and helped her grow, you know, it just... I just don't think that's a good friend, even if he
0: really did care about her. Yeah, he definitely does seem possessive and the sort of friend that would just be exhausting to be around. Yeah, definitely. Now, I love how thoroughly unruffled Strike is when Simei asks why he's working as a private detective if he's Johnny Rokeby's son. And his response that brings the conversation right on track because he says, because that's his job. Go on about the Bristos. And then <laughs> the fact that Simei doesn't even bat an eyelash. I just I love it. Yeah, he
1: has to mention Rokeby again, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. There are a couple of things that I think are relevant to the case here, though. Mm -hmm. First, when he talks about the bags he sent to her the day before she died. Obviously, that was the day she went to Vashti and that's the bag where she hid the will. Oh, that's a good catch. You're right. And then the second, he said that he sent freebies to DB Mac, which is important because we know Bristow put them on as he ran away. Mm -hmm. So if you compare what Gisame just said with the CCTV footage, you can almost see that the person who killed her would have had to be hiding in that flat or be Gisame. You know. Yeah. It's also a bit confused, though, because he also notes that he
2: sells ready to wear shell suits. They mm-hmm. just slap the logo on. So it yeah. turns out both runners were wearing Gisame. One was with the logo yeah. and the other is with the more the lyrics. Right. So it's tricky.
1: Yeah.
0: Now, during this conversation, Gee basically asked if the suit that Strike was wearing is a demob suit. And I didn't know what this was or what a slide dig it was until I looked it up on Wikipedia. And Wikipedia says that a demob suit was a suit of civilian clothes given to a man on his demobilization from the British Armed Forces at the end of the Second World War. Although the suits were of good quality, the need to clothe millions of demobilizing servicemen led to supply problems that caused some men to receive suits that were not of the correct size. As a result, the D Mob suit became a common subject of British comedy in the post war years.
1: Oh, I didn't know that either. So, this is just him trying to pick at strikes some more. And it's just weird that people are always trying to kind of one up him or insult him, you know? Same is doing it here. Wardle does it. Tony Landry does it. Is it something about strike himself or is it the job that makes people feel defensive?
2: I think it's a combo of, of the job and also how big and how self-possessed he is that Mm -hmm. that puts people, like you said, on the defensive, especially when they're kind of shitty people, (laughs) which a lot of the interviews, interviewees are.
1: Yeah, that's true. It's never the good people. It's never the Unas who do this, right?
2: Yeah.
1: Like I said before, we do see him have probably the most genuine display of grief at the end here when Mm. he reacts to strike saying the body. I wonder if strike wasn't thinking or if he wanted to see his reaction.
2: Yeah. I think that strike, this is just how he's used to referring to, Mm -hmm. and maybe he slipped up, but more importantly, it's very interesting that we get the direct contrast with Christo's tears. In this mm-hmm. description because again yes. it's pointing us back to gisame's grief is genuine unlike bristow's and we're like well mm-hmm. why isn't bristow's grief genuine hmm yeah
1: so that's a little a little point there oh yeah i like that
0: that have been strike testing him to see how he would react to that
1: yeah it could have been but i do think that that's probably just how he's used to speaking but i also think he does do that to test people so it could have been either
0: Oh, with the way that this chapter ends and or are we not quoting it in full? Because we no. (laughs) Just at us next time, okay? (laughs) Wow. Well, it's fair enough.
2: Big rough soldier boy. Yeah.
1: Gisume actually, though, he does remind me of someone I know that I don't really like who kind of says things like this to shock and get reactions because he made sure strike heard that, right? That was his whole hmm. point. Yeah.
0: All right. Now we move on to chapter two. Yep. Yes. All right. In chapter two, Strike speaks with Spanner about Lula's laptop. The chapter opens up with Strike thinking
1: of Charlotte and thinking about the temptation that was still there to reach out, especially when alone at night. Mm -hmm. What's the line where it says that abnormal death is the only thing that's been able to hold his interest as much as Charlotte? It's something like that, right? Mm -hmm. I think we're seeing that here because he's putting it to use. He turns to the case to try and take his mind off the temptation to reach out to Charlotte. Yeah. That's a really good point. And I also like that he's thinking of it as Robin's desk. Yeah, it is her desk now.
2: Although one day it's going to be Pat's desk. That's true. And he's
1: going to be like, Pat's desk. But Strike's worry for Rochelle is growing. And when he comes back from trying to find her, he finds Spanner sitting on Robin's desk. Mm -hmm. And for someone not interested in people, he seems interested now, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. He sure does. (laughs) I love this line so much. Robin was laughing in the slightly grudging manner of a woman who is entertained, but who wishes nevertheless to make it clear that the goal is well defended. That is such a fantastic line. And I guess it
2: means that Spanner is actually funny. Yeah, maybe entertaining at least. Doesn't it say something like being funnier than Strike <laughs> <ever> found him? <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess Spanner doesn't turn on the charm for Strike.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean, why would he? <laughs> This bit makes me happy because the last time we saw strike and Robin interact was after Lucy's visit and it was awkward and unpleasant. So I love this little touch where he brought her coffee and doesn't want her to pay him back for it. It's just Mm -hmm. nice to see them being friendly again.
2: Yeah. And the bit about her being touchingly averse to spending petty cash Mm -hmm. on little luxuries, it feels like a little call forward to troubled blood where we learn again that Robin is super careful about spending
1: the agency's money on expenses. She has a lot of integrity there. It's so funny that Strike's first comment to Spanner once they're alone in his office is, she's engaged. <laughs> just, just the whole thing where Spanner ends up asking, already queuing, are you? No, said Strike. Strike, why are you lying? You're at the head of the queue. You're set up with
2: your tent and your thermos and your folding chair. You're in this for the long haul, you know.
1: That no was pretty quick, wasn't it? Yeah, that was, me thinks he does protest mm-hmm. too much. <laughs> yeah. One thing I love about Strike's style of investigating is how he thinks about how things will go over in court. So he wants to make sure that Spanner can prove he's an expert for the opposing counsel. And I think it just really shows Strike's experience. It's not the first time he's thought about it either. I think the first time is he's thinking about his notes. And how he wants to show full, complete records, you know, I just like it. Oh, yeah. That was when he showed off Robin.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was cute. I hope that we actually get to see him in court one day, because I think mm-hmm. it would be super fascinating. And a switch up from what we've had so far, where, where all the trials take place between books.
1: Yeah, so do I. I mean, I know we've talked about this before, but I am so fascinated by criminal trials. So I would also love to see that. Plus, can you imagine Strike on the Stand? It would be Amazing. Mm,
2: it so would be
1: you can just imagine the opposing side trying to outsmart him or discredit him and just how that would go (laughs) oh yeah you know
0: what forget being fascinated by criminal trials that's what I need yeah (laughs) absolutely oh my gosh god could you imagine it would be like a creed chapter on steroids it would be really good it would be really good I don't
1: know if we'll get it but it would be really fun to to see yeah so, we learned a couple things from Spanner and the laptop. One is that Lula had been looking at the School of Oriental and African Studies, and in particular, a professor, J.P. Aguibin, which I couldn't remember if I had suspected was her father. Do either of you remember what you thought?
2: Yeah, no. I have more chance <laughs> of winning a lottery than I do of remembering my thoughts from when I first <laughs> read this book. My memory's just not good enough. It is an interesting clue to what was going on with her though. Why was this professor so important to her that she made his name, her password? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Reader wonders, you know? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And the second thing is that there were pictures deleted from her computer 10 weeks after she died on March 17th. Mm. So, so that's before Bristow hired him because we know he hired him on the 29th. Right. Do you, so do you think that's him kind of preparing for hiring strike? Yeah, I think he must have been taking whatever precautions he could to make sure that
2: the detective he hired wouldn't find Rochelle because that was the one risk. Yeah, he would have thought that was the one risk because keeping that will hidden is top priority, right? Yeah. So yeah, definitely him getting ready to go out and uh, commit the absolutely idiotic move of hiring someone (laughs) to investigate the crime he got away with.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So then Strike and Robin look at the deleted photos once Spanner leaves. And I know I always talk about how much I relate to Strike, but Boy, do I relate to Robin here when it says Robin was a little ashamed of herself had she wanted to see something awful.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: It's just that morbid curiosity that I understand and also kind of feel guilty for. But it does make sense, right? Because she wants to see something because she wants an answer.
2: Yeah, I totally get it. I was kind of disappointed they were just social snaps too, though. I was hoping for something shocking and kind of dark and scary. But yeah.
1: Again, we are totally normal people. I don't need therapy. Can I go back to Gisame for a second? I know you pointed this out earlier, Pools, but here is where it says that in pictures with him, Lula looked more formal, more subdued by his side. I know neither of you suspected him, but what do you think this is about?
2: Yeah, well, I sort of touched on it in the last, but to expand, it seems to me like he is the really dominating, controlling friend. So mm-hmm. he's the guy who thinks he knows best for other people and he wants his friends to behave in a certain way and these kinds of people have a lot of manipulative ways of making sure that their friends stay in line, you know, mm. like, I think we've all had friends like that. I clearly worked on Lula. Yeah.
1: You know, <laughs> this might be another therapy addition because <laughs> as you say that it's like, oh, I've been there. That's maybe why I don't like him so much. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> yeah. Like a bit of shades of Lucy there too, a tiny little I bit. I
1: know. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking that Gisame and Lucy together would be stressful.
2: Oh, Yeah.
1: But I love this exchange between Strike and Robin where he wonders why no one has offered her a job. I like that she's saying she's pretended to be lots of different people on the phone and how it made him smile or laugh. And I also like that he's praising her and she blushes. The whole interaction is really good. Yeah, the interaction's great. His off the cuff, why has no one hired you yet? It's such a casual way to praise
2: her. Mm -hmm. I don't think he realizes yet just how much of an impact his praise has on her. Not yet being the key. I yeah. think he does figure it out pretty quickly that she likes hearing these words of praise because
1: love languages. Yeah, I wonder if he notices the blush. <laughs> yeah, I think he yeah. probably does.
2: <laughs> he does it later when she blossoms like a mm-hmm. like a water lily or something. I need more blushing,
0: please.
1: Yeah. I would really like that.
0: Yeah, me too. Like when he calls her exceptional. Uh-huh, I would
1: like so it if good. he does. Oh, oh, yeah, that would be so nothing cute.
0: cuter than the guy
2: blushing. Oh, yeah. my God.
1: Oh, it's so cute. <laughs> it's also fun to read about Robin thinking that she had been careful not to reveal her troubles at home with Matthew and realizing mm. that Strike had known anyway. Mm. Strike is already very perceptive, but he seems especially so with Robin and Matthew. And mm-hmm. I think part of that could just be his interest and curiosity in her. But I think it's also experience. So he's mm. probably able to recognize these little signs of trouble because he's been there.
2: Oh, yeah.
1: It reminds me of in Career of Evil when he knows not to say anything bad about Matthew when they split up. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. I just love the ending of this chapter, though. They've really moved on from where they were. He picks up on her dejection of not coming along to Lula's flat, and he asks her if she wants to come. And her gleeful yes is so good. Yeah, it's so cute. She's so excited. I know. (laughs) It makes me excited for our next episode, because this will be the second time they go out and investigate something together.
0: Yeah. That'll do it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in two weeks for another episode, this time covering chapters three through six of part four. If you enjoy what you've heard, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at the SC Files Pod with regular updates announcing future episodes. If you'd like to send us a response to anything you've heard or have something you'd like us to discuss on the show, you can always email us at scfilespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much again for listening, and we hope to catch you next time for another episode of The Strike in the Ellicott Files.